The opinions expressed on That's a Foul do not reflect the view of any organization to which the host or guest are affiliated or employed. Big kickoff to Season 2 on That's a Foul. We got Dan Sheridan, CWPA Commissioner, on to talk about how he got into the sport, what initiatives they are focusing on, and who has shaped his path as he continues to be a tireless advocate for anyone who wants to play, coach, or referee. Today's conversation was recorded with Dan in Philadelphia and me in Cincinnati. The audio provided a little bit of a challenge, uh, but Dan's story is a great one to listen to, so let's do it. Sports are an integral part of my life, specifically officiating. I've met a lot of interesting people on deck and on the sidelines. From referees to evaluators, coaches to administrators, and players to fans, each one has a story to tell. And that's a foul. It's a place to tell it. Each episode, we'll dive into personal and professional lives to see what they can share to make us all a little better tomorrow. I'm Chad Packer, and this is That's a Foul. So when I started planning this podcast a couple months ago, I knew I wanted to have Dan on to talk about water polo. The guy just simply exudes joy, and he is one of the reasons why so many players who graduate from high school still have a way to enjoy our sport, even if it's not at the varsity level. He's got a great story as to how he got involved with starting a team at West Virginia University, which may or maybe not included quarter beer night at the local pub. Let's hear that story and others in quarter one. So yeah, man, like I was saying, there's a, there's, there's a lot happening really fast. I just saw a, a tweet you guys had out there that GW is maybe canceling the women's or not no, canceling maybe. the women's eliminate. Yeah, it's, it's definite. That is how, how does that type of thing get to you guys? Like, do they notify you or do you get it from the institution or from? Usually the, um, the sport administrator or the athletic director will call me, give me a heads up before the release. Okay. So I found out about this on Friday, uh, and then, you know, we've talked through what, the, what it looks like. They're going to play this spring, um, and then they, you know, they kind of give a little bit of backstory. Sometimes I can share that backstory, sometimes I can't, but it depends on the situation. Yeah, that's, that's unfortunate. I mean, when you, when, when you hear that, I remember when Stanford made notice that they were going to be cutting 11 programs or whatever, the first thing you go to is, just don't let it be water polo and swimming, just because sometimes those are those are the ones they look at i guess which is too bad yeah yeah i remember you know you were we were exchanging some emails and you were saying hey you know what are, what are we gonna be talking about or whatever you remember uh, a couple of years ago when you hosted that barbecue kind of cookout thing at your house yeah. and left and yeah. you and me and a couple other folks were just sitting on the back porch just kind of talking water polo how you got into it i mean that's that is that is in essence really what we're trying to do on this podcast you know where why not have them come on and kind of just tell their story? You know what I mean? How did you get into water polo? Well, it, probably not the normal way. I mean, I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and uh, my oldest brother was a big-time swimmer and an athlete. And really, um, you know, if you look at my background growing up, I was not a very good athlete at all. I, I You know, my dad was a, uh, a little coach, basketball coach, my two older brothers were very good athletes. Uh, my oldest brother, you know, uh, the closest I ever got to an award 
when I was a young kid, was standing next to my brother's three-foot-high trophy when he won the punt pass and kick. <laughs> so, you know, I was like the third out of four boys, and my dad must have been wondering what happened here. You know, I get the little league. I go to an entire season, and I don't get a hit. The only time I can get on base is when the pitcher hits me with the ball. Uh, you know, those types of things. Um, basketball, I remember pleading with my mom not to make me go to basketball anymore because my dad coached it. And I just, you know, I couldn't make a basket to save my life. It wouldn't matter. So, um, you know, but I, early on, you know, just not really feeling like anything in sports was going to work out. And my oldest brother got, he was involved with swimming and water polo. And he said, well, why don't you come on out? And I remember as 14 years old, uh, not being a really good swimmer, but he said, hey, you got to get to be a better swimmer if you're going to play. And so I'm in the age group lane, you know, with 10 and 12 and unders, sure. learning how to, to swim competitively. But uh, once I started playing, I just caught the bug. And uh, yeah. I, wasn't, I still wasn't really what I would say is an accomplished player, um, even in high school. I mean, in high school, water polo was really big. It sounds strange. I went to this rural high school, but in my high school coming out for the team, we had 65 kids come out to play, wow. which was more than the football team, which did not endear us to the football coach. Right. And, uh, <laughs> but it was, a, it was a really great program. We had a lot of fun playing. And so I just, you know, even though I wasn't a really good athlete at that point, I just loved it. And um, so four of us decided we were going to go play in college together. You know, it's one of those dorky high school things that you say, okay, we're all going to play together. And uh, we ended up at West Virginia University. And between my senior year and, and my, uh, well, really the end of my senior year to the end of my freshman year was when I kind of hit my athletic stride. I went from like 129 pounds in high school to by the end of my freshman year, I weighed 175. It was a muscle gain. So it was just one of those weird growth spurts that uh, benefited me. And it really helped me athletically. And uh, so going to West Virginia University, I went there to swim and play water polo. It's kind of an interesting recruiting side bit. Uh, the uh, swim coach at the time wanted all four of us. And my three high school friends were much better swimmers than I was. I was a breaststroker, kind of average breaststroker at the time. Maybe could score points at a regional meet in college, but certainly wasn't going to go to NC2As. And, uh, but he knew that it was kind of a package deal with us after talking to the other three. So I was the last one to make my recruiting trip. And I go down there and, uh, he lays out the whole thing. He has the team playing water polo when I arrive in the pool. He's got the, uh, he gives me a copy of our schedule, you know, when we're playing and who. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sold, you know. And it was kind of the perfect storm, too, because my parents had separated by that time. So I had really very little adult leadership. I was a terrible student, so there weren't a lot of schools that were going to recruit me and want to you know, have me there academically. And uh, financially, it was really good. I know this is hard to believe, but back then, tuition at West Virginia University for an out-of-state student, which I was, was $676 a semester. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's oh my crazy. Gosh. That doesn't buy books at Penn State now, probably. But at any rate, uh, and then my, my high school coach had been fired. 
So I really had very little adult leadership. It was just kind of the four of us making this decision together. And uh, so I believed everything that was said. And about uh, sometime around probably late January, beginning of February, when swimming was winding down and we were approaching our championship, I started asking guys on the team, hey, you know, what's the water polo season look like? When do, when do we get started? And, you know, I'm kind of revving up for it. Because I had really gone to, to there for water polo, not for swimming. Sure. And uh, they just kind of politely told me, hey, you got to talk to Coach. <laughs> I go back to my roommate, who was also, you know, my neighbor growing up in, in school, you know, back in Methacton. I said, Bill, you know, what's that about? He goes, I don't know, that sounds kind of strange, but, you know, we'll see how it goes. Asked a couple more times, got the same reply from the seniors, and uh, eventually learned that there was no water polo team. There never was a water polo team. It made it all up. <laughs> it made it all up because he knew the four of us wanted to play. <laughs> to get us there for recruiting. <laughs> so, so at the end of that year, I, I, I was one of those kids growing up that, um, you know, if you twisted my arm behind my back, I, you could break it. I wasn't going to say, Uncle, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, and so I was determined I was going to play water polo and I wasn't transferring. So because he made it evidently clear that there was not going to be a water polo team at West Virginia University, as far as the coach was considered, um, I decided to go around him and figure out how I could get it going. So I met with the dean of students, and uh, he was very cooperative, um, very helpful. He said, here's how you do it. I go through the steps. And uh, long story short, he says, okay, you can start this team if you get enough people on this um, kind of survey that says you want to play. You develop the budget. So I go through all those steps. And, uh, and then he says, okay, this is my last step. You've got to have an advisor. I said, oh, no problem. I know this guy from Fellowship of Christian Athletes. His name is Dan. He's a professor. He goes, no, no, no. I, you know, I don't think, um, I don't think that would be the best. And I said, well, why? He wants to be our advisor. He'd be glad. No, no, no. I think you should have somebody in the aquatics program. So I've selected the swim coach to be your advisor. <laughs> this guy absolutely hated me at this point because I was leaving the team. I wanted to start water polo after he told he had a big team meeting and said there will not be water polo at this school. And you know, so it was needless to say when I went in to give him the paperwork and said the dean of students has has named you as my advisor. That was an awkward meeting. Yeah. <laughs> so. And anyway, he signed the papers, but there was this caveat. If I could not prove that there was interest on campus by people coming to the practices, then he could cancel the program. So he decided to give me the worst possible hours. Now, you got to remember, at West Virginia University at the time, drinking age was 18. So that meant you came in as a freshman. Basically, you could drink. Okay. The bars and stuff on, legally. And... Um, so he gave me pool time Tuesday night from 10 to midnight and Friday night, 10 to midnight. Oh, that dog. <laughs> so he figured it was fait accompli. This was not going to happen. But I, um, I was somewhat resourceful, and I, I got in touch with a lot of my friends. Nobody in West Virginia could play water polo if you went to West Virginia. I mean, there's no high school aquatics program okay. pretty much in the state. So I set up tables and I recruited kids that were out of state and some kids that had swum before. 
And then I, I still knew I needed more. So I talked to a bunch of kids that had never played water polo before, and I said, look, there was this bar on campus thing, Choosy Mothers. I will go, and they had Friday night, you could buy beers for a quarter. They're probably watered down, but that's the deal. I said, I will buy you beer after practice if you come to my practice 10 in the night. And if you can't swim, just stand in the shallow end, chuck balls at each other. I don't care. I'm just show up for practice. So that's how we started the team. So half the guys just stayed in the shallow end. There's this one guy named Ted Stilwell. I'm not sure he could swim. So we wanted to make sure he had to stand in the shallow end. And uh, we got enough people on the roster. And the coach would come in at 10 o'clock at night, count up bodies, and slam the door and walk out. <laughs> so that kind of began my foray into really water polo after playing in high school. And we had a blast. We did everything at West Virginia. We traveled to Canada every year. We had this big um, international tournament. Uh, and I still run into people who I never knew were at that tournament. But we had like 23 teams fly into Little Morgantown. There wasn't even a real airport. You had to take a puddle jumper to go from Pittsburgh to Morgantown. Oh, no. And in the, in the biggest part of our tournaments, we had these for a couple of years, we had the Venezuelan national team. We had the Canadian national wow. team come down. Uh, we had um, the New York Athletic Club. We had all these teams from all over the place. It was a great event. And uh, it was really good. It kind of launched me as, as more or less um, into the world of water polo administration, kind of pulling that off. We had television coverage where they we were broadcast. Um, we, it was just great. And all these things kind of overshadowed what was happening with the collegiate swim program, which was where my advice was vested. <laughs> and so we just, there's this verse in the Bible that says, don't, don't abuse those that are mean to you. Be kind to them. It's like heaping coals on their head. So, so every time we would be interviewed in the newspaper, which was basically once a week, you know, we had all sorts of big tournaments. They'd ask me, so, what was, what's your secret to all this? I mean, you're bringing the Canadian national team down for this. And I'd say, you know, we couldn't do it without Kevin Gilson, the swim coach's health. There you go. There you <laughs> and go. It, was, it was terrific. I mean, we just, we had a great time. So my roommate, when I was graduating after four years, you know, he helped out with these tournaments. He didn't play, but he just loved the drama of it. He got me this T-shirt that said, Kevin Gilson Fan Club. <laughs> I mean, Coach used to do everything he could to stop the program. He'd lock the goals in the closet before practice. He would, he even had the, this is the extent he went to. He even went to this, the uh, university and told them, because we would flood the pool for these major tournaments to make it all deep. He had the um, school tell me that it was dangerous for the pool and the filters to flood the pool. So I had to go to the, the West Virginia University Department of Engineering and get a signed statement to give back to the dean of students and said, no, it will not harm the aquatics in the pool. <laughs> so, yeah, it was quite a battle for four years. And then I stayed on for my graduate degree to get my MBA. And I can remember that day walking into his office and he's sitting back in his chair and he goes, okay, so I guess you're out of here. And I said, well, actually, I'm not a coach. I stayed on for the graduate program, so I got another two years. <laughs> that was great. 
That is quite a story, and it, it makes it very clear to me uh, why you are best suited to do what you're doing now. If you had to do all that budgeting and everything like that at that age, man, I don't know how you did it. All right, as we get into quarter two, we're going to talk with Dan about his experiences after college, how the CWPA began, and he shares his appreciation of club water polo. Well, you know, we knew we wanted to have, I knew I wanted to have a competitive program. Now, I knew we couldn't do it with practices two days a week. So we searched everywhere for another pool. You know, hotel pools are those little kidney-shaped things. Right. We trained in Cheap River for the beginning of the school year until it got too cold. But back then, you know, there was no conservation. So Cheap River was basically a mining dump for all the coal mines. We would start the school with black hair. And would, by, by the end of September and beginning of October, all of my hair looked like rust colored. Oh. It literally changed our hair color. <laughs> so um, we just, I said, we got to come up with a solution better than this. And my club sports supervisor said, well, you know, I do have one pool. Well, like, oh, my gosh, why are you telling us now? You know, where is this pool? <clears throat> I said, well, you might find it in a little strange location. I said, I don't care. We'll drive to it. We'll carpool. Well, it's not that far. It's just off campus. I said, okay, where is it? What's well, at the federal prison? <laughs> Seriously? Yes, it's in prison. I said, okay. So she gives me the number of the guy up there that we have to talk to. I make an appointment. Turns out he used to be some basketball star at WVU for years, and he's now running kind of their, I don't know, whether you can call a rec department at a prison, if you can call a prison rec department. But basically, he supervised things for the inmates to keep them from harming each other. And uh, I said, so we'd love to use the pool a couple of days a week. What would be the requirement? And he thinks for a minute, and he says, okay, I'll make you a deal. You can use the pool for free. Three days a week, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, or Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, are days that we weren't practicing at, at Vilma, uh, West Virginia. And he said, um, but you got to teach my inmates how to swim. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. So, um, so we go up there, and the first hour before our practice, the inmates would come in. And we had forgers, we had armed bank robbers, we had the whole gamut. And... Uh, there's one guy nicknamed Creature. I never did learn his real name. I was about to ask him. <laughs> we taught him water polo. And uh, we had a blast. It, it was really a great uh, kind of lesson for me because in my head, I'd come from this kind of rural uh, high school, you know, very small high school. I The biggest thing people didn't break the law in my high school was smoke in the lavatory. You know, it just... Right. And so here I am, I'm teaching to hardened criminals, I'm teaching water polo, and I got to know them as people. And yeah, they had made some bad choices, but they were still people. And it was really a good education for me. Um, and, and it also was a kind of a reminder of, of how blessed I was with where I grew up versus maybe where they grew up. And maybe if I'd grown up where they were, where I'd be stealing cars and jacking things too. Sure. So, it helped my perspective, for certainly on life and giving back. Um, so that's kind of it. Uh, I graduated from West Virginia, and I said, hey, hey, I love this water polo thing. I want to stay with it. And I had one professor in grad school. The class was really a waste of time. It was an evening class, and he was 
if you listen to what he was, he was an ex-CIA agent, he did all these things. I'm not sure how much of it was really true, but he gave one really good piece of advice. And that, that was worth the cost of the whole class. He said, figure out what things you want to do in life first, and then figure out how to get paid for them. Mm. And so I took that to, to heart. Because in the MBA program, as you can imagine, all my peers, they're all going to Wall Street. They're all going to go make a huge buck. And um, I, I'd ask them why, and they said, well, that's where the money is. And that really didn't appeal to me at all. Uh, it, it's not that it's a bad way to make a life, but that wasn't where I wanted to go. I want to do something in sports. I want to be entrepreneurial in nature. Ever since I was a kid, I always had my own business. I mean, whether it was raking leaves, mowing lawns, snow blowing. Um, I mentioned when I was in Little League, I was a terrible athlete, but my teammates loved me because they sold more peanut brittle than anybody else. And I bought the whole team in uniforms with money. So, you know, even as a young kid, I was entrepreneurial and sales oriented. So when I got into the idea of um, what do I want to do, I said, well, I'd like to be involved in sports. And I'd like to do something entrepreneurial. Let's see where it goes. Uh, so, again, my oldest brother, who was an influence with the aquatics, he was uh, living in Canada at the time, and he was coaching in Montreal. He said, hey, I know this guy named Herb Flewellen, and he's doing something with the Canadian Olympic Association with sports. You want to come on up? I was just married, um, graduated college, just got married. My wife had this great job at a bank, and uh, neither of us knew French. And we said, he said, you know, you want to come up? And I said to my wife, hey, what do you think? And she goes, I think that's really a bad idea, but I'll go if you want to go. <laughs> I said, okay, let's go. So we went up there, and uh, her blue line, you know the bubble machines that they make for diving? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he invented it. Okay. And so he was living off the patents of that. And he had this thing where he was taking sports groups um, from the basically local clubs. And he was busing the elementary school kids to like gyms. And he would have a staff where he would train them. And he would do gymnastics primarily. He would do swimming, diving, and that kind of stuff. And so he said, sure, you know, you, your background, I know who your brother is. He's a big swim coach at the same pool I do diving. I'll hire you. So I thought, oh, man, I just landed in it. This is wonderful. We were staying in my brother's place for a while till we could figure out, you know, where we were going to go. We really only had our suitcases with us. And uh, so we're up there about a month. And I'm starting to suspect that things are not completely on the up and up with this guy. Um, you know, things like, uh, you know, Herb, um, when do we pay taxes for the, the payroll that we're doing? And, and uh, you know, dude, this, I don't see any governmental forms coming through here. And I was the administrator. And I was like, well, should we be doing something? Am I missing something because it's Canada and not the United States? Long and short of it, Herb was a really good inventor. He was not a very good business person. Okay. And so it became apparent that if I stayed there, I could be spending my my career starting out in some Canadian jail. And so I decided that was not going to stay. And, and we left with her owing us quite a bit of salary. And we said, you know, we're, we're going back to the States and we'll figure it out there. So I came back. I still knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. So I started an organization called Young Athletes of America. 
And it was really modeled after a philosophy I had growing up for kids that were not very adept at, at sports. I figured every kid should have the opportunity to play, even if he was a klutz like I was. And so uh, I started this organization really targeting kids that were not gifted athletes because I figured there was a zillion programs out there for the travel soccer kids and, and the kids that were really good. They would rise to the top. But I needed something for kids that, you know, couldn't get a hit all year in Little League. And so I started it with that kind of philosophy. And it worked. Uh, we grew the organization. And as I started doing this, I said, obviously, I've got to start a water polo team. So we started that. And that grew into um, kind of the water polo club. And we had some success with that. And we naturally started some large-scale tournaments. We started what was called the Eastern Water Polo League, which spanned from Canada all the way to D.C., all different age groups and teams, and we had a blast with it. And so from that, that was really kind of the birth things for what was then to become the CWPA. A friend of mine who was coaching at the, um, he went to University of Pittsburgh, Mike Schofield, who was this legendary coach at the Naval sure. Tech. Sure. He contacted me and said, hey, you know, um, I'm playing for the Pittsburgh Renegades during the summer. You're playing for Philly. Um, you know, I saw what you did here with this organization. I mean, we had stats, we had an all-star game, we had teams from two different countries competing, and it was really a pretty cool thing. He said, would you be interested in putting something like that together for the colleges? I assumed the colleges had something much bigger than what we were doing. And I said, well, what are you talking about? You know, you guys probably don't need what I'm doing. He goes, well, I, I think we might. Why don't you come to our meeting? And uh, kind of, you know, explain a little bit about what you could do and see if you could help us. And so I went to the meeting. There's a large table at Bucknell University, a bunch of coaches sitting around the table. And uh, Paul Barron at the end, Paul was this icon of a, a referee. He had done all refereeing at all different levels. And he was guy, the kind of water polo guru um, if you were going to be on the East Coast for officiating. He was just kind of big bear of a man. In fact, his nickname was Bear. He's six foot six, about 260 pounds. Yikes. And he was just, um, like I said, he was an icon in the sport. And so we're all sitting around the table, and it became evident to me they didn't have a real system that you would call like a conference structure. They sat across the table and said, hey, uh, John, um, I'll play you September 15th and, and uh, 30th. What do you think? Okay, yeah, and you know, I'll play you at this weekend and this weekend, and that was how they mapped out their schedule. And then they turned the schedule to a piece of paper to Paul and said, Paul, can you get us officials? And that was essentially it. Yeah. So I said, okay, uh, I think I can do um, something to provide you some structure. <clears throat> so I put together kind of a template, and uh, they said, uh, you know, we'll, we'll do a program, we'll do some statistics, we'll do words. And I'll get you a schedule, um, put it together, you guys review it, and then we'll hand it to Paul. Hey, great. What do you want? I said, well, I didn't even think about that. Well, what, <laughs> what do you guys think is fair? No, you tell us. <sighs> How about, uh, I don't know, let's just say $150 a team. How's that? And there were like 10 teams. So we started the CWPA with $1,500. That was my stipend. And... Uh, 
didn't really have an office. We used the Young Athletes of America office, and uh, we just kind of put it together from that. This was before fax machines, before cell phones, before computers. Right. And uh, everything I did was on a typewriter that you had that little corrector tape to put in <laughs> if you made a mistake with your spelling. <laughs> I do remember that. Yeah, so it's crazy. And now it's evolved into something a little bit different. That is. That's the one way to tell you that's where I got into water polo and administration. That's fantastic. It's so funny how, you know, I've, a friend of mine was on a couple episodes ago and he said, you know, there's a, there's a fine line you can, you can draw on a person's life. And if that line is cut, it jumps to another part of their life. You know, it seems like your line just kind of, it's funny how one thing leads on to the next thing, you know, and, and yet you're just, like I said, it sounds like you were, you were the guy that was, that was put here to, to make a lot of this stuff happen. I mean, I know obviously you've got an amazing team and you're great at, at celebrating those around you, but um, your story there makes it makes it makes it pretty clear. That's funny. Wait, um, I, I really didn't have a plan for any of this. Sure. Basically, circumstantial. Sure. Wrote a block, and you say, "Well, okay, there's no water polo in West Virginia. Well, let's start something." And yeah. you don't have a pool, and you figure it out, and you say so you find a pool at a prison. <clears throat> you don't have a big tournament. Well, what the worst they can say is no. Let's invite them. And sure. so one thing just kind of led to another. It wasn't like I had some kind of genius plan. I can tell you my calculus teacher would tell you that I didn't, didn't have a whole lot on the ball, so he was not predicting anything like this. <laughs> I remember he pulled me up after class one time, and he said, Dan, don't waste your old man's money. Don't go to college. Be a grocery clerk. Do something that you can do. <laughs> Great. Well, as a person who works in education, we need more of those people, I guess, right? <laughs> You know, something that I, I think is really cool about the, the CWPA is it has the varsity side, but it has the club side, right? And, and being yeah. a guy from Ohio, um, it, takes a, it, it takes a tremendous amount of talent and dedication to go on and do varsity athletics. But that the club exists and it's just so well organized that it, you can go to any university. Like you said, you can go to any university. It's really hard to start a varsity program. But if, the, if you want to start a club program, the CWPA is here to help you. Hey, what's so great about club water polo, Dan? Well, it, for me, you know, obviously, I didn't play varsity water polo. And so, although I admired, I admired the, the ability level and talent. I like the organization of it. And certainly, I do whatever I can to help promote it. Um, I always have a soft spot in my heart for club water polo because I know what it means to the student athlete to try to start a team, to coach your peers, to tell your roommate, hey, you're not playing good enough. You should probably sub out. You know? right. That's a really hard, awkward conversation to have if you want him to be your friend when you leave the game. Right. So I have a real clear understanding of what it's like to be in a club water polo setting, to be low on the food chain for getting pool time, getting resources, trying to convince your friends that have never played water polo that, hey, this is going to be fun. You're going to enjoy this. Yeah, you'll be able to play in a pool that you can't stand. Yeah, it'll be fun. Trust me. You know? <laughs> and, um, and so for me, starting club water polo was just like, sure, we're going to do this. I mean, why wouldn't we? And, uh, and then that atmosphere on the club level, and this is not to denigrate varsity athletes, but – Club athletes do it on their own dime for their own love of the money 
are for their own love of the game, and they're spending their own money, and they have to do everything themselves. On a varsity level, the, cl the coach does almost everything. You just show up to practice and try your hardest to be the best athlete you can be. But administratively, you have no clue. But on the club level, everybody understands. And so there's a lot more of an appreciation level from the student athlete about what the CWPA does. When I run with my team at Club Nationals, and I am at the entry desk, I can't tell you how many times I'll have student athletes come up to me and thank me for running the, the tournament, running the CWPA. And they're not blowing smoke, they're sincere. I mean, I've had athletes pull me aside after the last game in tears saying, this has been fantastic and we appreciate everything you've done. I can honestly tell you that's never happened after a varsity tournament. And it's just a different culture. Um, the kids really, really appreciate it. And so that pays dividends for me and my staff when we're running tournaments. Um, it's a lot of work to do the tournaments for sure. And our philosophy is we are here for the student athlete. Whatever we can do to make their experience better. And we spend a lot of time and energy on that kind of mission. But club athletes, um, they're a different breed. And the, the experience for watching them enjoy it, watching their participation at all levels. And when we do um, the Division Three National Collegiate Club Championship, are those athletes on the same level as Princeton and Navy? No, they're not. But at the same token, they're having just as much fun. At their level, they're having the experience of a lifetime. And so that's really gratifying for us. And, and if you, so if you think about our philosophy versus, let's say, some of the other water polo conferences, the fact that the CWPA incorporates collegiate club water polo, I think, speaks volumes about who we are as a conference. That we want everybody to be able to play water polo not just the most gifted athletes that have a chance to be on the Olympic program, but we want everybody to play. Regardless of your, your previous experience, regardless of where you live, you might not have a single high school in the state of Wisconsin playing water polo, but hey, we can have water polo at University of Wisconsin, and you know, it, we just we love that kind of offering. As we finish our conversation in quarter three, Dan talks about the challenges water polo commissioners are facing. The alumni initiative the CWPA has developed has some thoughts on goal disparity, and he heaps praise on a few water polo icons who've helped him along the way. Unfortunately, we are, we continue to face a tremendous amount of challenges, right? Leading um, in water polo and, and leading the CWPA. What are some what are some challenges facing it? I mean, it, it could be around the present pandemic. It could be around finances. I mean, what are just some things that you feel like, you know, it's just that that mountain that you're constantly pushing the rock up only to maybe have it tumble back down to the bottom. And, uh, you know, to use your phrase, you could twist my arm behind my back, but I'm never going to say uncle. Yeah, I just, for me, I love the challenges. And, you know, they, it becomes really cliche if you look in a lot of um, leadership circles and stuff about, Every, you know, crisis is an opportunity. Those types of things sound cliche, but the reason they're cliche is because they're true. Right. I mean, people love to use them, but they're true. And so when we see these types of things come up, yeah, it's, it's disheartening to see girls lose their entire senior 
you know, the senior class lose their entire opportunity to finish out their season. That's really tough. Uh, but we could roll over and say, okay, well, a woe is us. Let's forget about it. But we, we look at it like, all right, well, let's make the best that we can out of this. And so the challenge of the pandemic has been significant. I mean, we're, we're probably, we've lost the men's varsity schedule at this stage, at least for the fall. We're hoping that the NC2A um, will vote to have a, some type of a championship in the spring, but that's still not a, not a done deal. And we're hoping that we'll have a spring season. Um, <clears throat> a lot depends on, you know, how COVID shakes out. So we don't know yet what's going to happen. And that's probably been the biggest challenge, um, trying to figure out how we can still serve the water polo community at a high level, knowing that we're not playing actual games. And so from, from our standpoint, we've done a lot of virtual stuff. Um, we've increased our education. We've increased interest things like podcasts and interviews. Um, we're preparing for spring season. We've pared down some of the things that we've been able to offer. But we're still working hard at it. And we are gearing up for what we hope will be a winter-spring season. Now, the collegiate club on the men's side hasn't completely torched. There's a chance that we might be able to piece together something. I think I get a call a day about well, what will happen to us if we can't play in the fall. Will you do something for us in the spring? And we said we will provide water polo for anybody, anywhere, anytime, if you're able to play. And so if we do something for a small group of teams in the fall, we're going to do it. And if, we, if we're going to launch something in the spring, if that means on the club level we have two national championships, hmm. one in the fall with a smaller group and one in the spring with a bigger group, then we'll do it. But we're going to try to provide opportunities for kids to play as long as it's safe. Okay. And that will be determined by the institutions and the government, not us. Uh, we're going to rely on the experts. It, it, I, I don't begin to tell you that I'm an expert in you know, um, COVID or anything along those lines. Uh, so that's one big challenge we've had. And then just on a global level for water polo, our normal challenge is um, how do we provide something philosophically that is on par with the big five conferences like the SEC, ACC, Big Ten, Pac-12? How do we provide benefits and services to them that are just as good, even though on it's on the scaled-down version? <clears throat> and that's always been kind of our philosophy. And so we've launched a couple of different initiatives that we feel, I, I don't want to sound like overdramatic, but we feel are going to change the landscape of our conference. And one is called the Alumni Initiative. Mm -hmm. And that's where we're targeting people who are graduating every year with a personal ask. And what I mean by that is we're asking every senior that graduates before they graduate to think about giving back to the sport in one of four ways. We want them to become a mentor, a coach, a referee, or give back financially. And it doesn't mean they can't be more than one of those things, but we want them to do at least one. And when we talk about those four different things, we have programs, webinars, training. We have buddy systems so that if we want to become a referee, we match them with an experienced referee and so on. <clears throat> By doing so, we want to leverage the great talent and energy and excitement from the people that are graduating to help them grow the sport and give back. And we think that it's going to be a huge initiative that's going to pay dividends down the road. Now, we knew there was no way that the five of us from our office 
could make a personal ask to 1,500 student-athletes that are graduating every year. So we scratched our head and said, well, wonder who could? And we came up with this great idea about the ambassador program. Mm-hmm. And guys like you that, that get it with the CWPA, you understand what we're trying to accomplish. It's not about a paycheck for you as a referee. It's about giving back to the sport and helping others. We targeted people like you across the country and said, hey, if we gave you some literature and gave you a little kind of introduction about it through webinars, would you be willing to be an ambassador for us? And people signed up and said, yeah, sure. And we figured you guys contact all 1,500 student-athletes during a given year based on the fact that you're going and officiating at those locations anyway. And so by by kind of targeting all of our student-athletes through the referees, we were able to do a lot of personal ask. And in the first year of this pilot program, we didn't get that much in the way of um, success. The second year, we were able to reach 80% of all our student-athletes because we kind of keep a log of who's been reached. And we're figuring when we start up again, we're shooting for 100%. And then those kids are going to give back in a number of different ways. And that'll be a big way that we can help grow the sport, especially at the collegiate club level, where, where they need mentors, referees, and coaches in various parts of the country that we don't have any. You sent a like a little two to three minute video. I don't even call it a, a it was it was almost a preview where you were talking about goal disparity. Yeah. And that's something as I, I coach, I don't know if you know, I, I coach for, for 18 years and, you know, high school in Ohio, we need as many kids to play as we can. And if they're getting just destroyed every time they play, how often can that person wake up again, going back to Sisyphus, how often can that person get up and roll that stone back up the hill before they just say enough, man? Uh, and especially at the collegiate club level, if right. you're a varsity coach and you're required to get a team and win games, well, you're going to go out and recruit, you're going to spend time recruiting, and eventually you're going to get competitive or you're going to get fired. Those are the two choices. So losing a lot of games in your beginning years as a varsity coach is only a process for you sure. because you know that you're going to come out at the other end. But for a team leader who's trying to keep the team afloat the first year and they get waxed, the first four games by an average of 10 or 12 goals, that's not fun. And uh, now the second tournament's coming up, and they're sitting with their team, and now they've got, instead of 15 people coming to practice, they've got eight. Yeah. And now they're trying to convince the eight people to get in a car and drive six hours to the next tournament yeah. because they walk, because they've got a relationship with you as the team leader. Well, that relationship can only carry so long. And so when they go to the second tournament and get beat by another average of 10 goals, they're having a tough time fielding the team for the championship. Yeah. And we saw that as, as a recurring theme. And we said, we're, we add seven teams every year and we lose seven teams. This is not a way to grow the sport. And we figured we had to solve this. And this has kind of been the elephant room for years. And we've thrown up our hands and said, well, geography presents too much of an obstacle. We just can't do anything about it. And last year we said, you know what? I don't care. Whether geography presents an obstacle or not, we're going to let everybody tell us no. We're going to present an, op- an opportunity for them to solve the problem. If they see geography is too much to overcome to play light competition, then they're going to, we're going to make them tell us. We're not going to decide for them. And so we had a number of focus groups. Um, we've, we've had a lot of discussion. We've created, as you mentioned, I think we had a series of five different um, kind of uh, social media spots 
where we made the case that we can't stay here. I mean, when you want people to change, the first step is you've got to show them why you can't stay with status quo. They might think that you've got the best things since sliced bread as an opportunity, but most people won't change until you prove to them that you can't stay where you're at. Okay. And so we tried to make that case through five kind of social media spots. And uh, from the focus groups, it must have worked because we had 100% unanimous support for uh, what we're, we're, we're calling is kind of a restructuring. We're creating a, an opportunity for teams to play against light competition before the end of the season. And then from that standpoint, move on to a, a national B championship. We're calling it the national invite. And that will encompass the teams in the lower half of the divisions. And so if you are in the upper half of your division, you're ineligible to go for that national championship. And there are obviously some bugs to work out. We've told teams, hey, this is going to be messy. It's not going to be perfect the first couple of years, but it's going to be very, very important that we try. And by the, the feedback we've gotten, everybody is 100%. I mean, if, you, if you're one of those team leaders and you've been on the, the losing end year after year, you're like, wow, finally these guys have woken up and said they're going to help us. So we're excited about it. Yeah. It's what makes it fun. And I think about what water polo has given me since, I mean, every, this will be the first fall since 1989 that I haven't had water polo and I'm feeling it. I know. You know what I mean? But again, to be able to give back and, and be around cool people, like I've always told you guys, it's, it's why I'm doing it. Now, I mean, water polo is a lot of fun to referee, but the friends I've made is unrivaled, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. You got any, um, any shout outs to anybody that's kind of helped you get where you are or people that make your life a lot easier? Well, I, yeah, sure. I think of three people that had probably the most influence on me getting into the sport as an administrator. Uh, one was Monty Nitskowski. Monty passed okay. away a couple of years ago. <clears throat> people don't know this about Monty. Um, he was one of our most um, kind of, uh, not just an icon in the sport, but one of the pioneers of the sport. He, up till really the, the recent success with the women's team, he was the, the coach that had the most Olympic medals. Um, he was just an amazing guy. And he did it all as a part-time coach. Wow. He, he was the Long Beach City College coach. If you want to talk about how you don't create a resume for one of the winningest coaches in water polo history, <laughs> his would be it. And, yet, um, and then when he found out that water polo needed to grow around the country, he wasn't one of those guys that just said, hey, you know, that's a great idea. Somebody on the East Coast ought to do that, you know, because that's where you guys don't have water polo. You ought to just step up and do it. He got in his VW bus with his wife, Barb, and his wife is an absolute saint. I, I just love her to death. And he drove around the country in his VW bus, which is one of those, you know, like throwback to the 60s, yeah. you know, peace, peace symbols. And <laughs> That's where I met him. And uh, I said, you know, I thought, I'm this kid out of college. I'm going to call the, the Olympic coach? Are you serious? No, I don't even know what to say. He was making the tour. And I said, would you come to Philadelphia and meet with us and kind of explain? And, and I'll feed you dinner. And uh, so he came to my little row home in Pennsylvania. And uh, I was just blown away by his commitment, by his his love of the sport, what he was doing. 
And he was the most down-to-earth guy, you know. I, I don't know what I was thinking, you know, but he was great. And so he kind of took me under his wing, and, and uh, he just said, you know, you're going to get more involved in doing water polo in administration. I was like, yeah, right. You know, I'm not going to really do anything nationally. And then uh, Bruce Wygo, uh, who was this, I, I think, his saint of water polo. People don't know about Bruce either. Bruce was the, the uh, director of the International Swimming Hall of Fame when water polo went bankrupt. And water polo was about to be assumed under the auspices of the United States Olympic Committee, which is what happens when the Federation goes bankrupt. Okay. And the International Swimming Hall of Fame said, hey, we will lend you Bruce Wygo to the United States Water Polo Federation if um, we'll lend you to, we'll lend him to you for a year to kind of right the ship. And so Bruce is coming to United States Water Polo. He's sleeping on couches at the, the office because he didn't have enough money to put him up in an apartment. And he turns U.S. Water Polo from this bankrupt organization into the black. And he completely reinvents the sport. He grows the sport. He gets it on financial standing. And obviously, Monty and Bruce kind of hit it off because of the two, you know, like souls. They both want what's best for water polo, and and they, they just kind of hit it off. And so um, I knew Mike Schofield, and I knew what um, was the kind of the, the guy in Eastern water polo. And then I met Bruce Weigo going to some national conventions. I had never gone to this before. And Monty said, you know, you've got to come to these. You've got to come on out. And so when they decided that water polo um, was, was going to be dropped as an NC2A sport, all three of them kind of got together and said, Dan, would you help us? Hmm. And uh, that kind of led me getting involved on a national level. And so... If you ask me who I would credit for my involvement in water polo, it's those three people. <clears throat> All three people are completely selfless when it comes to anything to do with water polo. They will do anything for anybody, anytime to help the sport grow. And uh, that was kind of the three people that I would say more than anybody else, <clears throat> at least me starting out, that I would thank. Uh, and then, you know, I would be remiss if I didn't thank my team. Sure. I mean, my philosophy in management is surround yourself by people who are smarter and better than you, and then somehow you get all the credit for it. And that's basically what has happened. I mean, I am not not more gifted or smarter than anybody that I've had on my team by a long shot. But because I kind of just hire them and then get out of their way, yeah. you look really much better than anything I could ever produce. And so, you know, it's great. And it, it's, a, it's a misnomer to think that I'm somehow responsible for all this. The only way I could take responsibility for it was hiring them. And then they do all the work. So it, from that standpoint, I would say my team, you know, Tom Tracy, Ed Hawes, Justin Seifert, you know, our newest member of the team is, is Ian Thompson. And those guys are just great. Um, they do so much for us. And uh, certainly Ed Reed is our director of officials. has done fantastic stuff with education. Mike Shannon helping us with broadcast stuff. Um, we're indebted to them. And water polo should be as well for what they do. Yes, it goes out saying anytime I need to reach somebody, 
they, they are literally a phone call or a text away and they're going to either pick up the phone or they're going to respond in short time and say, call me at this time, you know? And I, I, I can tell you, I, I can't speak on behalf of the refs. I can just speak on behalf of the refs in Ohio that we all feel that way. So really, really appreciate that. You got time for some rapid fire questions? Sure. That's where the stakes get really high here, Dan. So if you start feeling a little bit of sweat breaking out, that's what it is, man. We've heard about Philly cheesesteaks in Cincinnati. If I were to go to Philadelphia, where do I go to get the best one? Oh, boy. Best is like, you know, that's like saying, what's your favorite color? I mean, you know, Pat's and Gino's down in South Philly are the most famous. And uh, you'll get a little bit of Philly culture because if if you get up to the front of the line, you don't know what you want. You're going to get abused by the person who's taking the order. So, you know, (laughs) that's always a stop that everybody has to make. But there are just so many others. I mean, whether you go to suburbs, whether you go in town, Philly cheesesteaks are just fantastic. Yes. pretzels, that's basically, you can't leave town without having both of those. Okay. Okay, I'm going to write that down. When you arrive at a pool to set up for a championship, what's the first thing you do? I look at the fact that most pools are designed by people who've never used them. (laughs) That's my statement. And so when I go to, especially now that we're streaming everything live, and I go to this architect's dream where he has wall-to-ceiling or floor-to-ceiling windows on one side opposite the spectator area, I just go... Gosh, if I could just find you and strangle you now, I would. Because, you know, you can't see anything from the spectator area because of the glare. Right. I always wonder how they pass the state code, because if you're trying to lifeguard on that side of the pool, you can't see a thing. You know, people could be at the bottom of the pool dead, and you would never know it. So that always leaves us with putting the streaming unit on the glass side of the pool, which doesn't have any... Uh, kind of height to it, and so you're streaming from the deck as referees and coaches walk in front of the cameras. Yeah. It's brutal. So the first thing I always notice when I go to set up is where are we going to put the cameras and whether this is going to be a nightmare stream or whether this will be fun. All right. I love to go to the caverns that don't have any windows. That makes our life a lot easier. Okay. (laughs) We got a couple of those back here, so yeah. Upon retiring, if that ever happens, you can move anywhere you want. Where do you guys go? Wow. I love to camp. I love the outdoors. If I'm doing anything besides waterfall, I'm outdoors somewhere. So, I mean, I, I like the, the northeast area um, every, every month of the year, except for probably late July and August, where it's 99 degrees and 99% humidity. Yeah. But I would probably spend more time where most of the national parks are out west somewhere. I mean, if you think of the national parks on the East Coast, you can probably count them on one hand. And, uh, you know, Salt Lake City within a drive has more than you can count on two hands. Wow. So I'd, I'd probably spend more time out west. Okay, good. Can you can you make fire out of sticks? Or with a flint? You can. You can? Yes, I can. Wow. All right. One of them is a matchstick. What's that? Those last ones are <laughs> You're ordering pizza for dinner tonight, Dan. You can choose the toppings. What's it going to be? Definitely pepperoni. You got to have spice in your life. Yeah, I always you have this it. expression, you know, 
if you think about my life, if you if you're going to do a metaphor, you think about a bottle of Italian dressing, and if you set the bottle of Italian dressing on the the shelf, come back to it in a day, it's all separated. And when you turn that bottle over and you pour it out on your salad, it just tastes horrible. Mm-hmm. The best way that that Italian dressing is going to work is if you shake it up. And that's really kind of the metaphor for my life. I mean, I need it shook up, you know, to get the zest out of life. I don't want something sitting on the shelf. Okay. You, oh, I got three more here. Uh, you're stranded on a deserted island, and you get to bring three books with you. What would we find in the Dan Sheridan Deserted Island Library? Uh, probably the Bible. My faith is really important to me. Okay. Um, my sense of humor is critical, so I would definitely bring a book of Far Side cartoons. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who even knows the Far Side will understand, and if you don't know the Far Side, it won't, you won't get it anyway. The third one, probably a book of how to survive on a desert island. There it is. Look at that. Practical. Way to work the question, Dan. Hey, I'm thinking about sending my kid to West Virginia. Give me a selling point from your time there why she should go there. You know, the, the atmosphere is different. It's like you're stepping, at least for me, it was like stepping back in time. West Virginia, when I went there in the, the late 70s and early 80s, was really more like the late 50s. Okay. Uh, like I mowed my neighbor's lawn for her, and the next morning there would be a baked pie on my doorstep. That's great. It, it just, you, it, might, it used to drive my, what was then my girlfriend, crazy when she came to visit us. We'd pull up to a gas station, and uh, we'd sit, and we'd sit, and we'd sit. And she goes, aren't you going to get out to pump it? I'd say, no, you don't do that here. And, they, and then somebody would stroll out, and they'd ask you about your day. And she'd be like, she'd be crazy. She's like, we just want gas. We just want to get out of here. And you know, you know, what's that? You know, what kind of makes that? What kind of miles do you get? Yeah, you having a good day? Just a different, totally different culture. I love that about it. I really did. I missed that. Yeah. Yeah, there's something about that. That's That's really cool. Someone you just met has never seen water polo before, but only has time for three adjectives to describe the sport. What three do you choose? Oh, wow. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, it's definitely taxing physically. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see athletes that are great athletes in that. And you don't need to know the rules to enjoy it. All right, Dan. Thanks for jumping on today, buddy. I had heard those WVU stories when I was on your back porch, like I said, but that's kind of the purpose of this whole podcast is to share the stories behind the people that are really driving the organization. Like your alumni initiative, there's really a great opportunity to get back to the sport, and I sincerely appreciate that we have uh, folks like you leading the charge on that. I mean, everybody has a story. Every ref, every fan, every coach, every administrator certainly has something to share. So I appreciate you sharing yours. That's been my pleasure. Well, I'm sure we'll see you on deck at some point. Stay safe out there. Keep moving the ball down the field because we need folks like you to keep doing that, all right? That's great. Well, thank you for the time. Yeah, I appreciate it, Dan. Take care. All right. Bye-bye now. It's always good to hear the stories behind the people. 
Dan is one of the kindest people I've gotten to know in the collegiate ranks. You can't really see it on the podcast, but he was smiling the entire time we were on the Zoom call together. That's just, well, that's who he is. Next week, I've got my buddy Craig Marin in the That's a Foul studio. I coached Craig when he was in high school before he headed off to the Ohio State University where he was in the Army ROTC. Before he left to begin his training after he graduated, Craig joined the coaching staff at Princeton and we got to be fast friends. I'm looking forward to catching up and hearing what he has to tell us. Until next time, y'all, be good to the refs. Shout out to our friend and fellow referee Adam Carroll for That's a Foul theme music. If you like what you heard today, tell a friend where to find us and follow us on your podcast service. As always, you can find show notes and other topics covered on today's show on our website, tafpodcast.com.